Welcome on in to the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 24 of Beyond the Page, the podcast that takes you a little deeper into some of the stories and columns in Golf Course Industry Magazine. I'm Matt Lowell, the Managing Editor of Golf Course Industry, and I'm as amazed as you that Beyond the Page is now more than two years old. You'll hear my voice a little bit over the next hour and change, but you'll hear far more from Paul Miller, Greg McCush, and Matthew Wharton. First, Paul and Greg. Paul Miller is a golf course architect in Minnesota who's worked regularly with Greg McCush, a former golf pro who now owns a course outside the Twin Cities. That course is Montgomery National, which features a bit of a Beatles theme and which is profiled really well by Judd Spicer in our October construction and renovation issue. They discuss their partnership, how to reimagine an existing course, maybe even a little about how the course is haunted. Seriously, we recorded this conversation right before Halloween, but the course is always haunted. Second, Matthew Wharton, who writes the America's Greenkeeper column on the back page of every issue. We talk about his October column, which focuses on a beloved course, a real hidden gem, a favorite of his, that changed a little bit for him after a recent renovation. Before either of those conversations, a friendly reminder that submissions for our sixth annual Turfheads Takeover issue and for our inaugural hashtag Turfheads Grilling insert are due Friday, November 5th. If you have a story to tell about any part of your work or life or both, 600 words or longer, we are all ears. We have a few spots left in our December issue, so if you've ever wanted to add a byline to your resume, here's your chance. Our hashtag Turfheads Grilling insert will be included in the December issue along with the rest of the takeover. It'll feature some of the best recipes, tips, and photos sent in over the course of this year. Everybody who submits to Turfheads Grilling will receive a special koozie, and everybody whose recipes or photos or tips are included will receive a maple cutting board. Send either takeover stories or grilling gaga to gcipriano at gie.net, that's g-c-i-p-r-i-a-n-o at gie.net, or mlawell, m-l-a-w-e-l-l, at gie.net. Also, our annual State of the Industry survey will be shipping out later this month. Look for that in your inbox, and if you have 10 or 15 minutes, fill out the questions to provide a little more information and help for your peers and the rest of the industry. We will, as always, make a donation to the We One Foundation, and thanks for everybody's participation in that survey. The full survey, along with features and charts and graphs and easily digestible information, will take up a good portion of our January 2022 issue. Now, on to the rest of the episode. Up first, Paul Miller and Greg McCush. My first two guests, again, on this episode of Beyond the Page, the owner and the architect of a great course up in the Twin Cities or about an hour outside the Twin Cities. We have Greg McCush. We have Paul Miller. Greg is the owner of Montgomery National, the subject of a fantastic story and really the cover story in our recent construction and renovation issue, Rocking on the Renovation Front by Judd Spicer. Paul Miller, 
uh, great, great golf course architect up in Minnesota. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. How are you both doing? Doing great. Doing great, Matt. Thanks for having us today. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming out. And I'm happy to get both of you on because I originally thought I was going to get just Paul and that would be fantastic. And then Greg chimes in. I'm like, well, you know, we'll, we'll get the full story here. Um, <laughs> or more is, bull crap. Oh, I don't know. I mean, it, it's a storytelling industry. There's so much great stuff to Montgomery National. I've got a page of notes. If, if we get through it, great. And if we go somewhere else, that's fine. Let's just start with, you both have a long time in the golf industry. Paul, you're now over 30 years and, and I think 25 as an architect, 25 plus as an architect. Greg, you go back 40 years. In case folks are not familiar with your work and, and maybe outside of Minnesota, they aren't as familiar as they should be. Why don't we just get maybe a one minute bio on, on each of you, kind of your backgrounds in the game? Sure, I'll start, uh, Matt. So I actually probably, because I'm older than Greg, I'd probably have closer to 50 years in okay. uh, golf. So I think my first golf was caddying in the Quad City Open in 1974. And then I worked at Crow Valley Golf Course in Iowa, which was the home course at the time for Butch Harmon. Uh, so Butch was there and I worked grounds maintenance for six years at Crow Valley and then came to Minnesota, go to college at the University of Minnesota and started in or got my degree in landscape architecture and then started in golf course architecture in 1990. So that's actually 31 years, I guess, right. in golf course architecture. I've had my own firm, Paul Miller Design, since 2004. Greg and I met when we were doing the design for the Meadows at Mystic Lake, and Greg would ultimately become the director of golf there. So that's where we made our first connection. And as uh, Judd said in his story, that's where the mind meld began. And uh, so we have 20 some years almost between us. And uh, Montgomery is the latest version of that. And uh, it's been fun to be connected to Greg and, and to do the work at Montgomery and put all these fun things into the fruition. And Greg, as Paul said, you, you've worked together now on projects for almost 20 years, but I know your history with the game goes back uh, well beyond that. Yes. Yeah. My, my family bought a golf course uh, in 1979, a little nine-hole golf course. It ended up becoming an 18-hole golf course, and then a casino fell next to us by accident. <laughs> and I remember my dad saying something like, uh, well, that could be positive for us. <laughs> So anyways, I'm an only child and I decided to become a golf pro because my family had this little golf course. So we ran that golf course until 1988. They started to offer us for our land, but my parents realized I wasn't smart enough to do anything else. So uh, they better keep it. We, we finally sell it in 2002 and the chairman of the tribe Stanley Crooks was almost like a second dad to me because he had played there for years and, and we'd gotten along for years. And so when we sold, he asked me to stick around. So I ran Lone Pine for a couple of years. And then Stanley said, we're building about a $20 million golf course. And we want you to be the project manager and oversee it all. So I was used to scrutinizing the price of a Snickers bar. And now I was buying $2 million worth of statues uh, for a golf course. So Anyway, and now you're back I, to managing Snickerbones. <laughs> yes. 
crack the sticker bars. Folks won't be able to see this. They're just listening to it. But we're on Zoom because there's three of us. And Greg, you are in the pro shop. So I can see shirts. I can see hats. I can, if I search hard enough, I could probably see sleeves of balls. There's a, there is a, uh, an old school, I'm guessing Coke or Pepsi price board over your shoulder. <laughs> There's Snickers in there too. There have to be. <laughs> yeah. And I don't scrutinize them as much as I once did, but no. So just having fun, been in the golf business forever, took a little hiatus from the game, uh, left the Meadows at Mystic Lake at 47 and saw this golf course at 53 and tried my butt off to get it. And people wanted to help me all over the place to have it. And I didn't dare take their money. And thank God I didn't. Well, that's a, that's a perfect jumping off point. Folks do need to read this story if they haven't already. But let's talk a little bit about Montgomery National. Because the hook is that it's sort of an homage to the Beatles. But there's a lot more to it. You didn't think going in that it was going to be a Beatles-themed golf course. It was, really sounds like it was just the perfect plot of land to to buy and, and to, to kind of rebuild this? Perhaps, or perhaps I was so bored because I was retired <laughs> for seven years. I needed something to do. It was more healthy than what I was doing. But the long and short is it, it's a beautiful piece of land, you know, and with Paul's help, we, we've done something that's pretty cool. Well, when you bought the course, when you, when you got back in after seven years, first off, what was it specifically about the land? And then did you have any thoughts that, oh, I'm going to work with somebody other than Paul? Or was Paul basically the first call? Oh, he's definitely the first call. Everybody, when I was about to buy it, family, uh, uncles, smart people, uh, told me, do not buy this place. It's a a losing proposition. And so uh, in talking to Paul, and we played the golf course a couple times prior to, Paul uh, liked the piece of land and thought there was lots here. So that was part of me buying it. And I think we had played it probably four consecutive falls would be my guess. Just And Greg would ask me, what do you think? We're going to look at it again. And we always, in our foursome, enjoyed playing it. And I mean, there's a ton of potential, but it's also not a bad routing and does not beat you up. And Greg's a good golfer. I'm a very mediocre golfer, but I love <laughs> playing it. So it's, you know, we knew the bones were, were there to start with. Just took a little while to kind of make it all happen. But take me through the process of the renovation then. So you've played this for a few years going in. You're familiar with the land. Paul, did you have an idea of what you wanted to propose and what you wanted to do? Or or did it kind of meld over time, even after you got on there? I would say it definitely melded um, over time because we started out. And and I think Greg had a vision of how he was going to manage the golf course. And Greg sort of had to get his footing in terms of operations and and really became a one-man operation and said, I'm just going to put the sweat equity in and see where this goes. And then we talked and said, what can we do? And But it did evolve where we got more active. And I don't think we put together a long-range plan for probably a year and a half, but we just looked at various things and as... Greg, as the point person, created this energy, and we really sort of went a social media route of bringing his clientele with us as we proposed these changes. And as that gained momentum, we were able to do more and do it more quickly than I think we thought would ever happen. So then 
the long range plan and even the clubhouse that I'm sure Greg will talk about in more detail, his vision for that, we were able to enact it. And uh, the energy has been unbelievable. Uh, we have some other people. Scott Greenseth is our uh, shaper extraordinaire. Kevin Unterreiner does the marketing and then J.D. Stanger, the superintendent. So we have this team of veterans that bring a lot of energy and, like I said, we try and bring uh, Greg's clientele and bring them along with us on this adventure. And we called it Magical Mystery Tour, and that's kind of what it's been. <laughs> yeah, you can't even make it up. So fun, though. And, Paul, I think you said that so perfectly. We're running with this thing and just having a blast. What were some of your memories, Greg, of the early calls with Paul, the early trips around the, the course uh, before the renovation? How did he pitch certain things to you? And, and do you remember what some of your early reactions were? Were you on board or was it, uh, was it more collaborative? Uh, I w- probably wasn't on board. Uh, okay. he, he, he definitely would put seeds in and I, I get what he's doing. He's, you know, trying to create business and I, he's a dear friend as well. But uh, so he maybe started out with a Fender guitar bunker. And, and I'm like, that's like so stupid. But so, but about three weeks later, I'm like, well, I like Olsen guitars. Let's do an Olsen guitar bunker. So I'm trying to get, get, like, he can't have all of it. And then at one time, and I don't know the timeline of it, he said something about we could name you know, this stairway to heaven. We could name this, 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 and this. And uh, again, I thought it was pretty stupid until I came up with the idea myself, you know, Beatles. <laughs> so we had a gentleman who had a massive heart attack my first year that I was here on our first green and two ambulances on the green and also a helicopter uh, was going over top of and came down and picked him up and the gentleman lived. So afterwards I said, John, I'm going to name that hole a day in a life because of you, a Beatles song. And he said, I would prefer if it was called a little help for my friends. So that's kind of where that started. It's Paul putting seeds in me. But then I started, as I was driving on the freeway, there's a Hot Sam's antique shop. Is that what it's called, Paul? I'm not sure. Okay. see it from the the interstate. It's pretty well known in in the Twin Cities area. Yeah. So anyways, they're sitting out there as a green submarine in a giant guitar and uh, the first time I went by it I thought oh my god that's crazy next time I went by it I'm like I'm gonna go in there and I went in there and it was like Willy Wonka of crap (laughs) you've never seen so much crap that was so beautiful to me and so this little gent came from under a tree and uh, I said uh, I'm interested in your your trinkets on the side of the road and I thought he was going to go into song like Come with me and you'll see a land of... So anyways, I bought them. And I think that's where I really saw that people enjoyed. I, I had a, a friend of mine paint it yellow, as you've probably seen the picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a yellow submarine. And people come and take pictures with it. And I saw that that maybe we're on the right track. Paul, were you on board with the Beatles? Because before we started recording you were listening to some Neil Young and we had a whole little sidebar about Neil Young and 
coincidentally, Greg's family's ties to Neil. Did you have just music in general or or uh, did you have somebody else in mind? Yeah, I definitely had the music sort of component because of Greg's love for music. And you saw him break into songs. So he's actively plays music um, at events and things. So I kid him and say, I think you bought this golf course just so you can get some gigs because he always seems to be playing. Um, that actually is true. <laughs> so Neil, I mean, I'm more of a Neil guy than the Beatles, but yeah. everything's an evolution. And I think when you bring somebody's energy and, and their passion to what they're doing, you can layer the design work and, and you can give it meaning and and energy and and I think the golf course is always for me sort of the fundamental goal is to improve the golf experience but however you do that and bring that to fruition is you can be as creative as anything and bring people along with you so it it really I think is a an adventure in how you put it together and work with your client and in the areas that you know they really are compelled to get energized about Paul, how would you say that you kind of tailor your style and your philosophy to individual clients? I mean, I imagine you you don't go in, you know, knowing this is going to be for this client, this is going to be for this client. I mean, it's, it is a collaboration. What What is that process like for you? It really is about sort of what they would identify as the goals of their golf course. So if you have you know, a really high-end client that wants to cater to really good golfers. I mean, that, that is a market and that dictates how you would design the golf course and how tough you would make it. Um, you have other clients who take a different approach, private clubs versus public golf. And so I had a pretty good idea of Greg's clientele, but that definitely impacts how you look at the design and, and what you try and do. And along with that, you have budgets. So, um, Greg referenced Mystic Meadows at Mystic Lake and, you know, doing more in terms of the detail sort of components to the golf course that all factors in, but it's a process of learning that and then being creative within that. But I think you can always bring extra. And Greg mentioned that Meadows at Mystic Lake, we did uh, sculptures that really referenced uh, Native American culture and their respect for animals and the land and Mother Earth. And we really imbued the site with that tradition and that legacy. And that just adds meaning and texture when people experience the Meadows at Mystic Lake. So I try and bring a lot of that into the design, but the design has to stand up. I mean, we want you to come out, play the golf course at your skill level and to really enjoy it. And we think we, like Montgomery, we think we can continue to improve that experience where the next time you come out, you're going to have even a better time and enjoy the golf course more. You obviously wanted to both put your own stamp on the course. Let's get it. Let's renovate it. Let's make it our own. Let's talk a little bit about maybe the nuts and bolts of the design and the renovation. First off, what was the timeline and did you manage to stick to the schedule and the timeline or, or like a lot of projects did it run a little bit over? I, I don't think we have a timeline. I think the okay. timeline is probably when I'm dead, <laughs> that it'll be done. 
<laughs> you know? Okay. So, and I think we'll just keep on, it's a big canvas that we just will keep on doing what we can do. Right now we're really working. So obviously have the big clubhouse coming in, a big log place that uh, my family's clubhouse was a, a log place, but uh, not quite as grand. But so we're just trying to make from the patio, from the clubhouse, from the turret, from the, uh, and a lot of this is all Paul uh, being as creative as he is, making it as, as beautiful as we can make it. And then we'll go beyond and start doing more bunkers and things like that. I think, you know, I would add to that, Matt, just in terms of Greg had this vision for um, having a log cabin clubhouse that was similar to what his parents had at Lone Pine. And I had done pretty early on with Greg, just some concept planning. He said, where could I put the clubhouse? And I think I did three or four concepts of various locations. And Greg pretty instinctively and pretty quickly knew he wanted to be at the highest point of the county and said, I like option C or whichever one we had called it. And I sort of look back in that in awe that he knew exactly where it should sit. And I think all of us, when we see this process going on, are just amazed at how great this is going to sit and overlook 18 and 10 and 1. And so we focused on those holes in terms of doing the improvements. We've redone the bunkering on 18 and really made it a pretty uh, strong finishing hole. We're redoing 10 right now. So it's sort of the clubhouse has driven us to make improvements in those immediate holes. And then like Greg said, we'll work outwards from there. But there is a lot still just in terms of sort of going to that same level. It's been fun too. On 18, I said to Paul, let's put a water feature in. And in moments he had, uh, we'll, we might have the best water feature on a golf course. So we've got two ponds that spill into waterfalls, go into another one, and you can see it the whole way down. And if we do weddings or whatever, we'll be able to have a perfect place to have pictures. So I think we've maxed out our 18th hole. <laughs> it's pretty maxed. <laughs> and I, we'll see if I've got two nickels to rub together. Paul, when, when Greg says that this project will be done when he's dead, what is the longest project that you've been involved with? I mean, it has to be years, but is this going to, when it's all said and done, be the longest running single course project of your design career? I've been pretty fortunate and I do have a lot of long-term clients. So I've worked for the city of Bettendorf, which happens to be my hometown where I graduated from high school. I have worked for them for probably 31 years or parts of probably. I'm not living that long. No, I don't have that much left in me. I, you know, so short answer is, yeah, I don't think I'm going to break that record. Okay. Um, we're doing a six hole short course there now, which you know is part of a $2 million renovation over four phases. So I do, I have been fortunate to have projects that continue on and great friendships. I mean, some of my best friends are Greg and people I've been fortunate to come across in golf. It's just a great industry. Yeah, I agree. Super lucky. What have been just so far, and and who knows what the years to come will hold, maybe there'll be more highs and and lows, but what have been some of the highs and some of the hiccups so far of this renovation project for you both? 
Well, I, I don't know if there is. I, <laughs> the hiccups to me are when you look in your bank account and you go, holy <laughs> crap, that costs a lot of money too, <laughs> you know? But uh, my dad even said, 82 years old, and obviously was in the golf business, that, uh, Greg, you're, you're playing double jeopardy. You just got double jeopardy and you went all in. And I said, uh, yes, dad. And, and he said, well, you've got bigger balls than I have. <laughs> Something like that. So um, I don't know if there's been a ton of hiccups, uh, but with this construction with the new clubhouse, you know, there's always snafus everywhere. And I don't really, like, I'm just learning what a draw is. And in the bank gave me a couple dollars, but uh, most of it's coming out of my own pants. So Anyways, I, I love it, and, and I'll be super bored when it's done. So then we'll just do another project. I think, Matt, I would add just, you know, this has happened pretty fast, but I've had clients that really never get off the snide, and I do a lot of planning, and, and it's just really hard for people to envision the changes or, or to pull the trigger on them. And Greg has really, for one individual that's, owned a golf course for basically three and a half years. He has put as much back into it as possible. And I do think his clientele sees that and they're on the adventure with us. And Greg posts things on Facebook and various social media and gets 60 comments. You're doing great work. You know, we love that you're doing this for our golf course. And initially the community was worried that no one would take over the golf course and keep it a golf course. So I think people are, are pretty involved and committed to what Greg's doing. We're working with the city of Montgomery on the project on the 10th hole where it benefits the neighbors for stormwater improvements. And so Greg's a valued member of the community. And, you know, we look to keep that relationship strong over time and do mutual beneficial project and events and so it's uh, there's a lot he can still do but he he's really you know taken some leaps of faith and and that's where we're at and have Ringo Paul and Neil <laughs> to the course if Neil comes then we can change that <laughs> mm-hmm. we're going with <laughs> the it, was Neil fun, it was fun today and this happens often gentlemen came in and I've got so many new players because they're hearing the little buzz about it but uh, said to me, wow, your owner must really like the Beatles. And I <laughs> just say, yeah, yeah, he like, really likes them. <laughs> on occasion, though, he didn't say it today, but on occasion, say, wait, are you the owner? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So I, I just look like a hired hand, apparently, but that's fine. Paul said a minute ago that folks around town were curious about who would take over and, and what would happen to the course. Even last year, there were still about 60 golf courses around the country that closed down from the average of about 200 a year right now. Was there any danger that the course would close before you took over? Um, I think so. You know, I, I have people all the time coming and saying, I tried to buy that place. I heard somebody was going to make it into a nine hole golf course, make it a a trailer park as well. The people of Montgomery were super scared about it. But again, they, they looked at me like, what's this guy going to do? You know, he's not going to put any money into it. And I still think they think I'm pretty weird, which is exactly what I want. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, so I, this place is not going away too, 
too quickly. I, I've had two offers for the land and I both times told them that I wouldn't take 50 million for it. And I wouldn't, because I'm just, uh, like I said earlier, it's a, it's a wonderful canvas. Paul and I, Scott, Kevin, we've, uh, JD, we're going to have a blast until we don't want to have a blast anymore or we're too tired, you know? And how have the numbers been? I mean, they're, they're up still a little bit this year over last year. There have been some down months with the weather nationally last few months, but last year, obviously rounds were up about 14% nationally. Uh, this year, I think they're still up about 7% over last year. Pretty, pretty strong for you. I'm guessing. Yeah, it's, it's been unbelievable. And I think the reason that I probably have numbers that are better than that is because I was this little dumpy place in a little town, you know, and then all of a sudden we were doing really weird stuff, <laughs> like saying we've got a guitar bunker and we've got a this and a that and a rattle tat. So I, I last year, I think I did 37,000 rounds. When I bought wow. the place, the best they ever did was 17. This year, I'm similar with my rates up. Um, so I've got a lot of projects to pay for. And if you see me riding a bike instead of a car, you'll understand why. Judd has a little passage in the story where he writes that Greg once asked Paul how the fifth hole might be able to be redesigned to be the new 18th hole. And I'm pulling what Judd wrote here, quote, he grabbed a napkin and said like this, that's how fast his brain works. So I'm going to ask you both a variation of this question, but let's start with Paul. Paul, the architect's brain here. How do you see the world? Do you think you see the world any differently than most folks? And maybe that's not a fair question because maybe you don't know how most folks see the world. But just how does how does the brain of a, an almost, well, more than 30-year golf course architect work, would you say? Well, it's a great question. And I appreciate the plaudits of Greg saying how fast my mind works. I think um, since we were talking about Canada and all things Canadian earlier, I happened to see a show on CBS Sunday morning with Wayne Gretzky. And he started playing hockey at age two and a half. And he said, I always went to my greatest asset, which was my mind. But by the time Gretzky was 22, he played hockey for 20 years. So I think your mind works fast when you have that amount of experience and you've really thought about all these things and processed them. So Gretzky was always three plays ahead of everybody because his mind was his greatest asset, but he had all this experience behind him. So I think my many years and thousands of hours of drawing plans and looking for solutions helped me or helps me think that quickly or to have solutions sort of in my mind and in process. So I had thought about that because that was a major goal of ours to have this clubhouse meet the fundamentals of 18 returning and overlooking one in 10. And so when it does, you get to the solution, it is sort of magical and even when it's your own solution, you sort of know you've arrived at the kind of aha moment and, and that you've solved the challenge. And, and you can't always do that, but when you can, you have enough experience to really know that this is a solution that you guys have been looking for. So I, I think, to put it in, in shorter terms, I think I had processed that a lot. And then when Greg 
said, do you have a solution? Then I had a ready solution, but I think I had gone through a lot of gyrations to think that through. So you're saying I'm lying about that napkin. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I feel like you're relying more on your experience here, Paul, which... I mean, maybe maybe so, but uh, I don't know. I feel like Greg gives you well, more benefit compared, of the doubt than just I compared that. myself to Gretzky. That's true. That's true. <laughs> the greatest hockey player of all time. It's not close. So, and I, yeah, if we keep going, I'll compare myself to Frank Lloyd Wright. And, and I wouldn't. Yeah. It's not all humility. Wait until he has a beer. He has one every month. And then it gets really crazy. <laughs> Greg, if we go through that that same quote from your perspective, I mean, how do you see Paul? Because obviously two different brains. Paul's probably more of a visual learner. I don't know if you have a photographic memory or not. My parents kept the golf course till 2002 when they could have sold in 1988 because I was too dumb to do anything else. So, <laughs> but so no, I, I'm more creative and, you know, uh, singer songwriter type. Uh, who acted and did did his thing for years and years and years, played every part uh, of a musical theater kind of a deal. So, so that's probably why Paul is so good at dotting I's and crossing T's, and I'm so good at kind of, well, I guess, digging in my pocket at this point. <laughs> how would you say you see Paul? Uh, because, again, you said, uh, you know, that's how fast his brain works in terms of, of conceptualizing just, things. Just brilliant. And that's not like a kissing ass kind of a thought. Just brilliant. Like if I have a thought and I need uh, somebody to put something together, he'll be, <laughs> he's doing my homework for me often. And that's how smart he is and so quick. And, and I think we've become a, a really good, what would be a good tandem, Paul? Uh, uh, McCartney, McCartney and Lennon. Maybe? Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you Keep be Lennon. Going. I'll be. Yeah, yeah. There I go again. Coming to the answer <laughs> quicker than Greg. <laughs> See, that's what he's got. He's only a text away for me to get something that good, though. <laughs> so it's almost like the movie Roxanne. If you recall when Roxanne, you're probably too young to know, but uh, it was a Steve Martin movie, and Steve okay. Martin. Uh, wasn't the best with women but he had somebody in his ear telling him what to say that's kind of like paul for me (laughs) i've never seen that one now i need to i love steve Uh, martin he's good yeah you mentioned lennon and mccartney a minute ago i feel like everything with montgomery national hooks back to the beatles whether you know paul is an enormous fan which he said you know not really to to at least one person he likes them but not his favorite band And, and greg you've said that you like them but it's it's still the idea more than anything else. Not the only music or pop culture nugget here in your history. Paul, let's start with what you did at Highland Park National Golf Course in St. Paul. You also had a Snoopy hole, I found, in some research. Tell me about the Snoopy hole. So I think it kind of ties into what we were talking about in terms of what's the environment that the golf course sits in. And the Highland Park neighborhood is the neighborhood that Charles Schultz grew up in. He caddied there. He learned to play golf. And if people look at Charles Schultz's history, he was a huge advocate for golf Mm -hmm. and really did great things for golf and uh, got significant awards for his contribution to golf. So as we were developing that project, I saw an opportunity on a downhill par four And initially, I started with a Snoopy Pond, 
And then we changed it to a Snoopy bunker that's from the tees, looks like it's sitting on the pond and sort of whimsical at first, but then started to put it together with Charles Schultz life history. And really at that time, there was a lot of activity in St. Paul with uh, Snoopy sculptures that were in different parts of the city. So I knew that it had, you know, deep sort of resonance with people, but initially people just kind of said, Oh yeah, that's interesting. That's, that's fun. But then it was the concept plan was up in a, the clubhouse and Charles Schultz wife or former wife saw this concept and, and they mentioned to her and she really liked it and said, you'll have to get approval through the trademark or whatever. And then it sort of took off. And once we constructed it and Scott Greenseth, who's on our project at Montgomery was the shaper and they've done a tremendous job of keeping it really well-maintained. So it's become this iconic feature. And, you know, going back to how my mind works, I knew that we really had something the minute we sort of put that on paper. And it's played out that way. It gets recognition internationally, really. But it works as a golf hole. I, I rebutted a Sports Illustrated writer who said it was trite and belonged on a miniature golf course. And I said, it functions as a bunker that tells you where the landing area is. And so it, and that's to me important that, you know, these aren't just icons sort of slapped into place, but that it works with the design of the golf course and reinforces what you're doing playability wise and those kind of things. But again, it's added value and it's culturally sensitive to what that environment is or it it builds on it. So win, 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 as uh, Michael from the office would say. (laughs) Something (laughs) very fun. We've also mentioned Neil Young a few times. I don't know how many have actually made it into the recorded part of the podcast. We were talking about Neil before we started recording. And Paul, you said Neil, probably your favorite musical artist. We were talking about Old Man. I don't think we mentioned Heart of Gold. My One of my favorite songs is Long May You Run. But Greg is the one here with the real Neil Young tie. And it's just it's too cool to not mention anywhere on this episode. Yeah. So my we're from Canada, my family. And my grandma Lillian was a bridesmaid at Rassy Young's wedding. So, and years ago, Rassy gave all of Neil's childhood books to my grandma and she ended up giving them to me. So I've got them with Neil's name in them. It's kind of cool. And then years ago, I called a rock line. It was called 1991. I was sitting doing golf schoolwork and Crosby, Seals, and Nash, and Young got together, and they had this rock line. They don't do this thing anymore, but, um, and so they said, next, Greg, and what will you talk about? And I said, I'm going to ask Neil if it's true that my grandpa used to kick him off the golf course for playing his guitar too loud, like on their yard, because they lived there. And they said, no, 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 and nothing that, that's like personal. And so I said, oh, okay, I'll ask him about the Shocking Pinks. And, and Neil uh, had a, a band called the Shocking Pinks. Anyways, they got on Greg from Escondido, California. 
on Rockline. And who's your question for? I said, Neil. And what's your question? Uh, is it true that Otto McCush used to kick you off the golf course? <laughs> so, uh, so I. They didn't hang up on you. No, I, I'm a rule breaker at every level. So, uh, anyways, he laughed and. Uh, he he's an avid golfer. Hmm. If you read his autobiography or several of them, he, I think, in one of his early contracts, he got a membership to Bel Air Country Club. I think it was as part of his contract. So he had this guy who was, you know, playing, writing songs like Ohio, but mm -hmm. belonging yeah. to Bel Air. Bel Air and, and, and wearing jeans. To the golf course in the 70s, yeah. 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 No, so just awesome. I don't know if those Neil Young childhood books are worth more than the uh, the land that the course sits on. Probably not, but uh, you could probably sell those for a pretty penny if you ever want to. Uh, or, or, or donate them to the Rock Hall. I know. That's probably what yeah. I'll do. Yeah, that's super, super fun. cool, though. And uh, in our new clubhouse that we're building, so a long place, uh, it'll be a shrine to probably all music. That's cool. Uh, so lot, lots and lots and lots of Beatles, but everything. Uh, in, in the beginning, it was all about Beatles, which is super cool. But uh, I, I think now I can let the gimmicks go. I've got a yellow submarine. I have a feeling that, uh, and let's hope that these guys stay along around for a long time, but people might come and uh, pay homage to them if they do pass. And if they do, you mentioned this to me when we were trading emails earlier this week, that apparently, I don't know how this is ranked, but M Montgomery National is among the 10 most haunted golf courses in the country. So I don't know, I, I have no idea how the great beyond and the spiritual works, but in theory, you know, John Lennon, George Harrison could be floating around Montgomery National. You know, someday maybe Paul, Paul and, and Ringo will be too, if you can't get them there before that. How in the world do they rank this? How did you find out that this golf course was, was haunted? I have no idea, but there's, if you go online, Montgomery National Golf Course in Haunted, you'll see all kinds of lore about it. There's even YouTube thoughts about it, but the family... Uh, from the 1700s, they're they're buried underneath a big cotton tree on our first hole. So the tomb is kind of sticking out. So it's kind of crazy. And I wanted to make up a bunch of crap about the fact that it's haunted. But then last year, two things happened. And this sounds like crap, but I'll swear on my kids on this one. So oftentimes in the shoulder season, I'll sleep here when my kids are off to school. And it's just me. But one uh, morning, I put my uh, breakfast in the microwave, pulled it out to cool it, came back, and there was a jacket smushed in, and this gives me chills, smushed like the, the furry part into my meal. And I thought, well, shit, that's got to be John Lennon, because he knows I, I like McCartney more. I have no idea. <laughs> so, so, but the other thing, and they're probably boring at this point, but um, last year in COVID, I had a, with nobody touching anything, I was just outside and I had a jar and they put 40 bucks in for their round. And so uh, one of the 20s went behind my bar outside and I saw it oscillating behind most of the day, very busy day, people waiting in line to put their 20 bucks or 40 bucks in, in the jar. And so this oscillating 20 that was sitting about knee high flew up and went into the jar. And I looked at the people that were sitting there and went, did you see that? 
and they said no i <laughs> never never mind <laughs> but but uh is true is true gets but gives me chills to say it so thank you ghost so one ghost liked me one ghost didn't i think <laughs> paul have you ever had to work around a tomb on any golf course projects no, I, as a matter of fact, there's a huge tree there and I kind of thought that whole look would play better and we could do a little more shaping with the first hole by taking that tree out and I'm really having second thoughts. So yeah, no, it, it's part of it, it for sure. It's right next to the, uh, one of the grave sites. So I say we, based on what Greg just said, we leave that tree alone and <laughs> But it's, I think it's my first. I mean, you do run into a lot of unusual things on golf courses in terms of burials and, and all kinds of stuff. So not totally surprised, but so, so a lot fun. of energy out there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is so fun to get you both together and talking and, and just rolling. Before I let you go, one last question, because this is such an ongoing long-term project. What are you both looking forward to? at Montgomery National, whether it's this year, next year, five years from now. And for both of you, but especially for, for you, Paul, what are you looking forward to in, in just the future of, of golf course architecture in general? I think I track on both. At, at Montgomery, I mean, I'm in the short term really excited about the clubhouse. And to be honest, looking, I'm a half hour away. I'm looking forward to listening to music on the patio, kind of joking with the people that come in on 18 and um, just sitting there and sort of enjoying the fruits of our labor of putting this all together. Seriously, it's, it's a really cool site that just is expansive and the sunsets are going to be amazing. And then everything that kind of comes after that is a little more pragmatic and, and a little more playability on the golf course. So I'm excited to stay involved, but this clubhouse is kind of a leap frog to where Greg wants to be. And then it's, it's smaller projects over time. I think in golf, you know, I think about it a lot in terms of where we've been and, and my history with Greg. I mean, we've all been through these challenges of golf being super popular and overbuilt subsequently and now coming back. But I think we have a lot of information that should change our approach. And I think climate change, and we need to mean it when we say things are sustainable. So we need to take an approach that's more sensitive. I don't think we can have new golf course projects that are just tearing everything open and exposing the land. So I think new construction technology and environmental requirements benefit all of us so we try and be more sensitive in our approach what we do and and have more respect um, for what's really sustainable kind of in the broad picture so i'm i'm interested in being in that discussion and you know not look at something and say we're going to take out two thousand trees because you know that gives us a hell of a lot of views on the golf course you know it's just I think we need to do better than that. And, and I want to be part of that conversation. And Greg, what are you looking forward to at, uh, at Montgomery national, whether it's this year, next year, you know, the, the, the end of the road for you, when you become one of the ghosts on the course. <laughs> I, you know, just 
somebody said to me not too long ago, I bet you can't wait till it's done. In fact, I just love the project of it. You know, like even today, they're putting footings in on my building. Like that's huge. I can look out the window. I see a huge cement truck <laughs> with a big arm putting, I mean, so every piece of it, I think when it's all done, I would be bored, you know? So I'm just going to enjoy every moment of it. Paul and I are going to have a blast. We'll have some Neil Young. We'll have lots of Beatles and we'll just rock and roll. Well, Greg McCush, Paul Miller, thank you so much. And if folks are in Minneapolis, St. Paul, anywhere around the Twin Cities, or if they're on a road trip, go check out Montgomery National. Sounds like a great place. I cannot wait to get up there. I've got some family not too far from there. So when I go see my family up there, I will for sure knock on your door and play around. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Great experience. My next guest on this episode of Beyond the Page, again, a familiar name, a familiar face. He's been off the podcast for a few months, and it's great to have him back. America's Greenkeeper, Matthew Wharton. He is the back page columnist in Golf Course Industry Magazine, also the superintendent, of course, at Carolina Golf Club in Charlotte. And you just said just a few seconds ago before we started recording that your October column, you wrote it about a couple of great, great Donald Ross courses and about Southern Pines in particular, and we're about to talk about this column and that course as you are on your way from Charlotte to Pinehurst. So not Southern Pines, but close enough. Uh, fun road trip, fun couple of days. Do you want to talk about the road trip at all, or do you want to go straight to that column of yours? Well, I just think it's, uh, as I was saying just a moment ago before you hit record, it's serendipitous that we're going to discuss that column while I'm physically driving spawners mm-hmm. so uh, I, I don't know maybe there's some kind of sweet irony to that or something but uh, no the road trip's cool it's part of the BASF experience so I'm going to be joining several other superintendents from the Charlotte area for a couple of days we'll get to experience the cradle and course number two uh, along of course with some, uh, some networking and some education on some new and exciting things with the BASF product line so so looking forward to it, to it. and um, yeah, so no better time to talk than the present, so <laughs> let's do it. Have you as a captive audience here in the car, or in the truck, I should say. So you mentioned in your, in your October column, Count Your Elbows is the headline in the magazine and online, that you love Southern Pines, and it's a course that, like the course you've tended to for so long, is, is a Donald Ross design. So... What you can't do in 700 words is is lay out your full relationship with the course. We have a little more time for that here. How far back does your relationship with Southern Pines really go? Does it even predate your, your turf pro career, or is it about the same as that? No, uh, I think I said in the column, I first played it in June of 2008, but um, to go beyond the page. So when I started at Carolina Golf Club in 2005, we were embarking on phase one of a four-phase master plan uh, renovation and restoration with architect Chris Spence. And the first phase of that project was just the construction of two new holes on some adjacent property the club had acquired. And so those holes ended up 
having a slightly different look and feel about them as compared to the the other 18 holes on the golf course I was responsible for. And then in 2006, we took two existing holes out of play uh, and converted them to our current practice facility and short game area. And it put the, the two new holes into the rotation. And I want to say it was somewhere about 2007, our third phase was the construction of a, a large dam to create an irrigation lake so we could get off of city water. But but Chris was, he had really made a name for himself, especially in the Carolinas. He, there was a couple of members of the Donald Ross Society that were really big on him for his uh, renovation efforts at other Ross courses in North Carolina, most notably the Grove Park Inn, which is in Asheville. And he had done Mimosa Hills Country Club in Morganton. And if you're not familiar with Mimosa Hills, it was the home course of uh, one Billy Joe Patton. Hmm. Billy Joe Patton was a famous amateur that played in the Masters on numerous occasions. And even, I think, perhaps even led the Masters through three rounds but uh, didn't quite get it done. Um, uh, you know, multiple winner of the North-South Amateur at Pinehurst. So Billy Joe Patton is a very famous name in golf in the state of North Carolina. In fact, the Carolina's Golf Association's North Carolina Amateur Trophy is named for Billy Joe Patton. So Spence, has, he's got a reputation, and he had said something to, to me and, and the general manager at the time and our club president at the time. It's like, if you guys really want to get a better feel for what it is we're about to do, what we're about to embark on as we get to phase four, He's like, you guys really need to go maybe see, go see Mimosa Hills. And so we, we make the little trip. It's about an hour and 20 minute drive from gate to gate. We're, we tee off on the first hole, the shortest downhill par four. We get down to the green and the fourth hole is adjacent to the first. It's, it's to the right of it, but we get down to the first green and I, I'm looking at the first and the fourth green side by side and I just went, I get it. And they all three turned to me and they said, what are you talking about? And I said, I know exactly what Chris is going to do to our golf course. <laughs> and they're like, "How? what do you mean? And I said, look at this green complex. And I said, what does it most closely resemble at Carolina? I said, it probably reminds you a little bit of number eight. I said, you know, with the back left corner and the back right corner. And it just became clearly evident to me how Chris recaptured the lost contours of the putting surfaces because they, they most likely shrunk in the 60s with the advent of triplex mowing. So, you know, what I had at Carolina when I got there, what I inherited was these little circular and oval putting surfaces that had all these really cool, unique features, but the features were outside the, the perimeter of what was being mowed and maintained as, as putting surfaces. And so it was a light bulb moment for me. I saw instantly, and I, I knew, okay, this is this is how our golf course is going to look going forward. And sure enough, when we went through our renovations, we started in the fall of 07, and it bled over into the spring and summer of 08. And so um, we'd seeded all our greens in April of 08, and we started springing fairways in the middle of May, and we get to about the mid part of June, I think we finally sprigged our last fairway, and my club president says, you need a break. And he goes, and there's a couple of courses I want you to see. 
So he and his wife took me and my wife to Pinehurst for a couple of nights. And the first course we played was Pine Needles. And uh, Pine Needles was, you know, very highly maintained. Uh, it had been redone, I think, by John Folk back in maybe 05 or 06 or something like that. But So we played that course that morning, you know, the, the two couples. We had lunch there at Pine Needles. And uh, another couple, friends of theirs, joins us for lunch. And then they, they say, okay, well, after lunch, us guys are going to go over and we're going to play Southern Pines and the, and the, and the gals are going to go into the village and do their thing. And so, uh, so the three of us go over to Southern Pines to play it that afternoon. And he's telling me on the way over there that he goes, no, it's not going to be anything like what you just played. It's, it's a little raw. And, um, I always like to refer to it. It was rough around the edges. Mm. Uh, it might have even been rougher than that, Matt. But but the reality is, it was just like the bones were there. It was almost like looking at at Carolina months prior. I saw all the same features, the the, the, the bold shapes, the, the ground contours. It was all there, and, and so it was real easy to just, in my mind's eye, envision a very similar renovation or restoration uh, as we went through. And so uh, that, that was the, my first introduction to the golf course. And then for a number of years, we used to do a, a member's trip in the off-season. Uh, the head golf professional, the general manager, and I would, would attend, and we'd have, I don't know, 20-plus members. We'd go to Pinehurst on a Friday. We'd stay at the Pinecraft Inn. And, you know, for those that traveled in early enough on Friday, you know, they, that was like an optional round of golf. And, but then we'd, we'd play on Saturday and Sunday. And it seems like Southern Pines was always in the mix. We were always playing some combination of Mid Pines and Southern Pines or Pine Needles and Southern Pines or uh, maybe Dormy Club was in there uh, on occasion. But, you know, we're, we played it so many times and <laughs> And uh, we've even, and when I say the off season, I mean we've been snowed out. Uh, I once played Southern Pines in a thirty-nine degree, almost like freezing rain. A little bit like Scotland. Yeah, exactly. And but the more I played it, the more I just kept thinking to myself, this is this might be the the better of of all the courses. Hmm. It's just doesn't have the and it doesn't have the level of maintenance and upkeep. But just from a design standpoint, uh, I just really, really liked it. And so uh, it, it quickly grew on me, and, and, and I developed a, a real soft spot in my heart for it. As a result of Kyle's ongoing work with both Mid Pines and Pine Needles, it was that ownership group that just recently came to purchase Southern Pines. That... Uh, that transfer of ownership from the uh, the old Elks Lodge was just uh, about a year ago. And so with the Mid Pines Pine Needles ownership group now also owning Southern Pines, it, it was no surprise that they were going to have Kyle start to uh, improve and update and enhance the golf course because 
he's the one that's done all the all the work on both mid pines and pine needles for for a number of years. So the work that he's done there is kind of more in line with what he's done at those other two courses. Mm-hmm. And it's not too dissimilar from the work that Gil Hands did on course number four. Uh, and uh, so I I feel like to a certain degree, instead of it being able to stand on its own, it, it kind of just fell into one of the same, so to speak. But at the end of the day, I mean, I, I get it. You know, everyone has d- different tastes. And when it's all said and done, it may very well win renovation of the year <laughs> by by one or more publications. Um, it sparked a lot of interest. Uh, rounds are up, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, those regulars that always enjoyed a certain pace, if you will. Well, that's that's now a thing of the past, and uh, I think that's kind of where I was going with with those remarks. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, but like I said, part of it for me was just I had I had already renovated the golf course with my imagination, and then it just you know the work he did was just in a different direction from how how I saw it enhanced in my mind's eye. And uh, I just, it, it, even though, like I said, it's it's long overdue. That, I mean, that that golf course is, has needed a renovation for a long time. It it needs some tender loving care, and it needs some some uh, some resources and some uh, investment in its infrastructure. It, all that's long overdue, and and I'm I'm thankful for that. But at the same time, it's just a little bittersweet. Yeah, it's a little, I think in my, my notes to you, I think I use the term double-edged sword, and it's just, you know, golf course architecture, like a lot of things in golf, is just, it's very, very subjective. You know, what you like, I might not. What I like, you might not, although I think we do have some overlapping tastes. Uh, can renovations, especially of those older courses, those beloved courses, the hidden gems, be sort of like that double-edged sword, you think? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I know we kind of went through it. So I kind of experienced it firsthand some at, at Carolina just because, you know, we had uh, – I mean, Carolina only went private in 58. And so uh, in 2005, 6, 7, and 8, I mean, at that point we were just sort of coming up on a 50-year anniversary of, of being a private facility. But uh, we – I still had a handful of members that were – charter members or second generation members had grown up playing out there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for them, there were, there were things they had a hard time, uh, coming to, you know, maybe having a hard time letting go, whether it was, well, tree removal is always a, a hot topic and can, and can be emotional, but yeah, I mean, I, I kind of experienced that firsthand with, with some of, some of the members at Carolina golf club. With our renovation. That's interesting. The um, I included this in my notes to you as well. I, I doubt you listened to it, but there was a great episode of the NPR podcast Throughline, which is kind of their one of their history podcasts, and it looked at the history of nostalgia. And I wasn't 
entirely certain of this before that episode, but nostalgia was originally viewed as not only a negative thing, but almost like a disease. Like it was something that, that struck you down, your longing for the past. Um, I don't know, maybe this is too deep a question for a, a, a golf course maintenance podcast, but what are your thoughts on, on nostalgia? Positive? Negative? Can we, can we dive too deep into it? Do we have to let certain things go? What are your, what are your thoughts on nostalgia? Wow, that's an interesting question, and I've never given it any thought before. Uh, I have not listened to that podcast, but I will say that I, for one, am kind of I'm I'm a very nostalgic person, mm-hmm. uh, and and I'm not afraid to express how there are many things that I just think were better in the past as opposed to now. Uh, a prime example would just be. Uh, the NFL, you know, I the game that I grew up watching in the '70s and the '80s to me was was vastly better than than the product that's on the field nowadays. Um, it's a different game. I certainly felt yeah. it's, a, it's a totally different game. It was way more violent, way more physical, and I, you know, I I am one of these guys that kind of scoffs at some of the some of the penalties that gets called nowadays. There have been a few ridiculous um, ones this year. Yeah, my wife tells me I'm an old soul, uh, and and the readers will see those words again <laughs> in the November column. And I, I do. I, I'm a real. I'm a history nerd, and uh, yeah, but I never thought about nostalgia being a. You know, it's it's funny. I've had a conversation with a uh, a superintendent. Granted, the, the whole conversation has just taken place through direct messaging. But, you know, to, to, to summarize it, he says that right now, there's no better time on earth to be alive than right now. And, and, and what he's referring to is just all of the advancements of society that are available to someone that if, if you had a chance to be born, now, now is the ideal time to be born. And I just disagree because I just... I feel sorry for children today and, and this uh, attachment to this electronic device that, that they're now born with, it seems, because we, we hand them one to pacify them, you know, while they're still in their uh, strollers and car seats. And I, I just think to myself about, you know, I grew up in a, in a rural area and I, I played outside all the time, you know, we... We played all the sports in season. You know, we played we played football in the neighborhood when it was football season. We played we played basketball in basketball season. We played baseball in baseball season. We stayed out till till well past dark and we rode bicycles. We used to we used to fish and sane for minnows in the creek and uh, and of course my favorite thing to do was just to you know when it snowed we'd ride inner tubes and. Um, you know, I just, sometimes I just think about kids today and they just don't even get outside. So, uh, yeah, I kind of wax poetic and get real nostalgic and, and think that it was probably better then than it is now, but, uh, that's just my perspective. Although we would not be recording an episode of this podcast if you were in the car and just listening to your radio in 19... 19- Pick a year, 85, 86, 87, somewhere around there. 
Yeah, true. I mean, it's, you know, it's, you know, how ironic. Oh. <laughs> oh, was that, does that make me a hypocrite? I'm not sure. I don't think so. I mean, there's certain, there's certain positives and negatives. My five-year-old this morning, my, my parents got her a tablet for Christmas last year. It was the worst thing they could have ever gotten her. She's become a zombie at certain points in time. And this morning, she has maybe 30, 40 minutes in the morning to get dressed, grab breakfast, and then we walk to school. And she asked, where's my tablet? I said, I don't know. Where did you leave it? And Carolyn didn't know where it was, and she didn't know where it was. And she's like, I was going to watch part of something. I'm like, you don't need to watch part of a video at 7 in the morning. You just don't need to. <laughs> so there's positives and negatives, for sure. I saw a photo posted online a couple weeks back of a young girl and a cat. And they were just staring. They were sitting beside each other, staring at the screen of a tablet or a phone. I think it was a tablet. And the caption said that the parents purchased the cat for the girl in hopes that it would provide some entertainment and distract her from the electronic device. Mm. And, and the photo was taken literally two weeks after the cat had been introduced to the family. And I mean, and the cat's staring at the screen just as intently as the little girl. It was, it was really kind of a, an odd, odd juxtaposition, so to speak. There's a lot of ways we could go with that about cats lowering blood pressure. And our five-year-old is also obsessed with cats. We've been reading lots of cat books lately and I've learned lots of facts about cats, but, uh, I didn't know cats got into to tablet screens as well. Um, to wrap up, because we could continue to go down this nostalgia rabbit hole for your entire drive to Pinehurst, any other hidden gems that you still love playing, maybe that haven't been renovated yet? Let's let's finish with that. Let's let's finish with uh, the present. You know, that's a great question. Uh, and the funny thing is, is uh, Catawba Country Club in Newton, North Carolina, which is one of the one of the last. It was either next to last or or third from last of the of the Ross designs hmm. in the mid forties. The golf course superintendent there is Robert Arrington, and Robert is from Russell County, Virginia, where I grew up. Okay. He graduated. He graduated high school with my wife's baby brother. No kidding. So, yeah, small world, but. Uh, We've played up there a number of times, and for and for a long time, Catawba was in the same same boat. Um, of course, had all, all it just kind of looked like Carolina did pre-renovation, and um, so it was always sort of a fun little place to play. They finally had an opportunity and raised some funds, and they they did a bunker renovation. And, and redid their greens, and they used uh, Jim Sparks. And although it was better to a certain degree, the bunkers needed it, and they put pure distinction on the greens, which was nice. But he he just took some artistic liberties within within the putting surfaces and created these little. I mean, the greens weren't weren't very large to begin with, and to start to create segments or quadrants or shells within the, that small of a footprint was just sort of 
you know, I'm not as I'm not as big a fan of it as I was prior. Hmm. You know, but, I mean, my, probably one of our favorite places to play. And when I say our, I'm referring to, to my wife and I. Is, you know, she'll tell you that Pine Needles is one of her favorite courses, and uh, and we also really like Mimosa Hills. Those are when we get a chance to to slip away for a little day trip. That's that's typically where we'll go. We love playing Carolina, but man, we've been so busy ever since COVID. It can't can't hardly get can't hardly get on the golf course I'm responsible for. Right. Well, that's the real subjectivity that matters is what you like, but also what she likes. And if you're both happy, then that's guaranteed to be a good four or five hours. Yeah, I said. I mean, I just I wanted to write about that renovation. It was but funny. I mean. Guy said something about, uh, hey, if you're looking for an idea, he's like, you know, October, we're going to be doing like this renovation <laughs> report. And, uh, you know, he kind of gave me like sort of the general theme of a couple of months down the road. And the timing just worked out perfect because Southern Pines was reopening. And I'm like, okay, well, I can go play it and see it just in time to get it in at the deadline for the October column. So, so like it at least fits with the theme, but it was, uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave the architectural reviews to Bradley Klein. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, we should probably have Bradley on the podcast and Bradley can just say, Matthew, stay in your lane. <laughs> We'll have him back on either next month or the month after. We'll we'll get Brad back on for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, but I just um, it I just it just struck me as odd uh, how how you could be so excited for something, and then once it happens, I was just kind of like, meh. You know, I just I just. I, I just found that to be so ironic, and it was just something that I had not anticipated. Right. You know? So, yeah. Well, you're going to another great place today. By the time this podcast comes out, you'll have already played number two, and you'll have played the cradle twice and had some great instruction and seminars. So, as always, thank you for coming on. Have a safe drive. If folks haven't read Count Your Elbows in the October issue yet, read it online at golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine or page 62 of the October issue. That should be in your inboxes now or the next couple of days. And we'll see you in Myrtle Beach in the next couple of weeks, Matthew. Well, actually... Oh, no. Uh, you Actually, you won't. This is probably as good a time as any to, uh, to spread the news with your listeners, but uh, I will not be at the Carolinas conferences show Mrs. Greenkeeper is going to have uh, surgery. Uh, it's uh, they've scheduled her for surgery on that Tuesday, the 16th. This is what we hope will be the last of the uh, reconstructive efforts as it relates to her battle with breast cancer in the last year. And uh, so, yeah, uh, you guys are all going to have a great time without me, and I'm going to be where I need to be. That is infinitely more important. Hope that everything goes well there, and uh, we'll see both of you 
at uh, 2022, Carolina's then. Good Lord willing, you'll see both of us <laughs> at the 2022 GCSAA conference and show. Well, that too. That comes first. That's insane. Yeah, in uh, in February yeah. for sure. Yeah, good Lord willing, we'll both make it to that. So uh, it's been a while since she attended the the national with me, and uh, we both love San Diego. So that I couldn't think of a, a better better way to. Get, have her by my side again. Yeah. Well, the best to her and to both of you. And again, safe travels. And uh, always great to have you on the podcast. Matthew, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure talking with you as always, man. My thanks again to Matthew Wharton, Greg McCush, Paul Miller for taking some time to go beyond the page. And my thanks to all of you for listening to all the podcasts on the Superintendent Radio Network. New episodes of Off the Course. Greens with Envy, Tartan Talks, and Beyond the Page drop just about every Tuesday. Our October issue is online now at www.golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine with Matthew's column, Judd's feature about Montgomery National, the rest of our construction and renovation package, and so much more. Even more stories and news are available in our fast and firm email newsletter that's delivered every Tuesday to your inbox Sign up directly on our homepage at www.golfcourseindustry.com. Golf Course Industry is produced by Guy Cipriano and me, Matt Lowell. Our columnists are wonderful Terry Buchan, Henry DeLozier, Bradley S. Klein, Tim Morrigan, and Matthew Wharton. We have some fantastic regular contributors too. Trent Bouts, Lee Carr, Ron Furlong, Judd Spicer, John Torsiello, Anthony Williams, Rick Wolfel, and... Yes, I read his name out of order because I have a fun fact to read about him, Tyler Bloom. Tyler has some great stories about the current workforce situation on our website, www.golfcourseindustry.com. Check those out when you have a chance. Tremendous insight. Our publisher is Dave Zai. Our sales team is Russ Warner and Andrew Hatfield. Jim Blaney designs the magazine. Caitlin Sellers and Michaela Dodrill make sure everything goes where it should. Christina Warner makes sure you all receive the magazine. Kelly Antle makes sure we all get paid. That is very important. Irene Sweeney does everything and more. Anna Kolar, Cody Minnick, Tom Bauman, Brock Andrada, and Patrick Briand, R-R-I-T-T. Our president is Chris Foster. Above all else, we could not do what we do without all of you. Thank you so much for listening.